This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 45, recorded on July 23rd, 2014. I'm your host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here in the room along with my new co-host, Dr. Neelay Shaw, who you've heard coming to you from Cologne, Germany in recent episodes and now is here in the flesh. Welcome, Neelay. Thanks for having me. And also with a co-host via Skype from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Lionel Chow. Thank you for being here, Lionel. Uh, thanks for having me today. I'm really excited about uh, discussing these papers. Yeah, you are our main man today. So we're going to be discussing a couple of uh, papers related to pediatric brain tumors, uh, some exciting work, and complicated work. So hopefully we'll be able to d- digest it a bit for our listening audience and help us all understand it. So remember, if you have questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you're listening to it a long time from now, please email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. So, Lionel, why don't you take it away? Okay. We're going to try to get through uh, two different papers, one which is um, uh, more clinical um, in its bent, and the second paper which is much more preclinical, in other words, uh, uh, discussing some data about the science of tumors and not really related to patients, at least not directly yet. So uh, let's start with a clinical paper, which actually touches on a subject that we discussed a couple of um, episodes ago, uh, which is uh, using uh, harnessing sort of the body's own immune response uh, to fight off tumors. And so the title of this first paper is Antigen-Specific Immune Responses. It's a long title, so uh, bear with me here. Antigen-Specific Immune Responses and Clinical Outcome After Vaccination with Glioma-Associated Antigen Peptides and Polyinosinic polycytidylic acids stabilized by lysine and carboxymethylcellulose in children with newly diagnosed malignant brainstem and non-brainstem gliomas. That is a a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a paper that was published um, just this month in this month's Journal of Clinical Oncology, uh, so July 1st. And for those of you who want to seek out the reference, uh, it is volume 32, page 2050. And the first author is Ian Pollock, and the senior author is Hideo Okada. Uh, All of these authors on this paper come from uh, the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, Ian is somebody that uh, I've met on many occasions. He's a great neurosurgeon. As the title um, suggested, the the subject uh, today is brainstem gliomas and high-grade gliomas. And these are tumors in children that really have a dismal prognosis. This is a group of tumors that we're, we're failing really miserably at in terms of treatment. And just to run some of these numbers by you so that you can see what I'm talking about, the standard therapy for, um, glio- for high-grade gliomas in general is to do a maximal resection where it's possible. And obviously, when these tumors occur in the brainstem, it's really absolutely impossible to do any kind of um, resection. So the then- brainstem, for those of us who... For, our, for any patients, maybe, or other lay people, it really is the controlling center of the brain for the breathing and all the involuntary things that we do, heartbeat and all that, right? And every, everything from the brain runs through the brain stem, so you can't, can't cut it out. 
That's correct. That's absolutely correct. So as I was saying, uh, uh, you know, if the, if the tumors are located in the region where you can do a resection, that's what we will try to do. And then we usually follow um, the resection with maximally delivered focal radiation therapy. Now, where we're really failing is that there has never been any chemotherapy agent or regimen that has been proven to improve outcome for these patients over and above delivering radiation therapy alone. And what radiation therapy does is that it, it basically just, it, it's a temporizing measure. It uh, delays progression of the tumor, but ultimately almost all of these tumors will progress. So some numbers for you, the median survival for a brainstem glioma, once again, these are the tumors in which we don't do any kind of surgical intervention, is about nine to 10 months while the median survival for a high-grade glioma, and this depends uh, a little bit on how much of the tumor you can take out. Obviously, we tend to get a better uh, median survival if there's a gross total resection uh, compared to one which is a subtotal resection, but it's usually uh, quoted as being around two years. What's the average age of incidence for each of those tumor types? So the brainstem gliomas uh, tend to occur sort of in the young childhood age group, sort of like school age group. So, you know, five, six, seven. Although, you know, we do definitely see these occurring in teenagers as well and rarely in the uh, young adult population. Uh, high-grade gliomas uh, can occur at any, there's, there's, no, there's not really any kind of, of a peak in the um, pediatric age group. There's a kind of like a constant uh, incidents all across uh, childhood. You may know that uh, high-grade gliomas, especially glioblastomas, which is the highest grade four type of tumor, has two different peaks in the adult age group, uh, one in the 40s and 50s and one another peak in the, in the 70s. And I they, think don't, they don't do much better in that age group either, right? They, they don't, although in the adult age group, there is at least one chemotherapeutic agent, temozolomide, which has been shown in very well-done, well-controlled clinical studies to provide some benefit, including increasing long-term survival from, you know, from 5 to 10 or maybe 12%. So uh, there are some patients who can be cured by temozolomide with radiation therapy, but it's still a small number. I think that also helps to emphasize the fact, though, that the, the newer science demonstrating that these high-grade gliomas in children are different um, at, a, at a molecular basis from what arises in adults as well. Would you would you say that, Lionel? Or yes, absolutely. Now I was going to mention that because I, I if, if memory serves me correctly, I think we had an episode, and and Tim, maybe you can figure this yeah, out. Yeah, I think we with the H three dot three. Yeah. Yes, where we discussed some of the uh, pediatric mutations, uh, particularly in the histone H uh, three proteins. And uh, what is absolutely remarkable, remarkable about these mutations is that they occur uh, almost uniquely in pediatric high-grade gliomas, uh, do not occur in adult high-grade gliomas, and also do not occur in almost any other type of tumor type in either kids or adults that have been looked at. I believe that there's some chondral sarcomas that have been found to have histone H3.3 mutations as well, but that's about the only other tumor that has been found to have these mutations. So Yeah, that was episode number 25, if anybody wants to go back and listen. There to you it. go. So, yeah, so as you were saying, Nilay, um, the, the biology of these uh, of pediatric high-grade gliomas is uh, turning out to be very different from adults. 
And that probably underlies the lack of response to temozolomide, which uh, has been seen now in about two or three different clinical studies. So this particular clinical study, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, is sort of, and the title suggests, is going to take advantage uh, of the body's immune response to try to uh, fight off this tumor. And a couple of episodes ago, we, we talked about CAR T cells, uh, these chimeric antigen receptor T cells that were, that have been used in leukemia treatment. This, in this paper, what they're taking is sort of a vaccine approach to accomplish the similar outcome. In other words, instead of uh, giving patients a genetically modified uh, T cell to fight off the tumor, as, as um, has been done in leukemia, but what would these, this group is trying to do is to boost the body's own immune system using antigens that uh, they have found to be expressed on the tumor to uh, to fight off this disease. This group had previously done several vaccine studies in adults with malignant gliomas to, uh, to show that uh, this approach can be, uh, well, number one, is safe in adults and can be potentially efficacious. And so they were particularly interested in translating uh, the study into a pediatric age group because, as I mentioned at the outset, the, the uh, there is no standard chemotherapy given to this group of patients. So this is like one of the only group of cancer patients that I know of in which we can do phase one or phase two types of studies in a population of patients that is, is chemotherapy naive, has never been treated with other types of chemotherapy before. And, and so therefore you're hitting the disease at a much earlier time point in the course. And the thought is that if we can do this uh, immune therapy at this time point, it might be better. That's a um, terrific point right off the bat because you know, as immune therapies have been coming online more and more, it's it's always been a paradox that if immunologic effects on tumors are real, then, you know, what we're doing with chemotherapy is inhibiting those. So that's uh, a good point that these patients are untreated with chemotherapy. That's correct, yes. And then the second rationale for going into the pediatric age group was that, you know, I'm not an immunologist, so I can't really speak to this, but they, they thought that in the younger age group, you might get a more robust immune response Maybe that's true if you compare it to, you know, uh, uh, somebody in the 70s and the yeah. elderly population for sure, yes. Okay, so um, the second uh, sort of piece of uh, preliminary data that these, these people had, this group had, was of course the identification of glioma-associated antigens in these pediatric tumors. And they had previously identified three antigens that were, uh, or three different proteins, I should say, that are sort of frequently expressed in pediatric high-grade gliomas. And these proteins are the interleukin 13 receptor alpha 2 chain, the Ephrin A2 receptor, and a protein called Survivin. They had peptides corresponding to HLA A2 restricted T cell epitopes synthesized. So that may that may be a little bit much for some of our yes. audience. The HLA A2 restricted what what do you mean by that? Once again, uh, immunology is not my strong suit, but my understanding is that different epitopes. So epi an epitope is is um, a piece of a protein or a piece of a, a foreign material that is recognized by a very specific T cell. Epitopes always combine with the MHC, major histocompatibility complex uh, receptor on cells that are presenting these epitopes to the immune system. And all of us have uh, a very specific MHC protein, uh, have very specific MHC proteins so that our immune system can recognize cells that are our own cells compared to cells that are foreign cells. There's a sort of a, a hundreds, probably thousands, actually, of different MHC uh, combinations. Uh, HLA-H2 is one of these MHC components, and it's expressed, the, the particular A2 version is expressed in 
something like 5 to 10% of uh, the population, what they're looking for is these antigens that will combine specifically with HLA-A2 to recognize, for the T-cells to recognize. So I think it's fair to say that uh, this particular peptide, if it's HLA-A2 restricted, is only going to be displayed into the immune system in patients who have the A2 allele. That's so, exactly correct. Right. Yes. So if you don't have the A2, then this particular peptide anyway wouldn't be useful in terms of vaccination that's for like, you. That's the point. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So you'll see when I get to the uh, patient selection that um, um, the first step was to select patients for A2 uh, expression. And and if this were to be successful, one might be able to find similar peptides from the same protein that are displayed in other kinds of HLA types so that eventually, you know, you could potentially get around to developing vaccines that might be appropriate for all patients. I think it's important to, or nearly all patients, to, to emphasize that. But this would be proof of principle in those who are the A2 type. If you had to, you could uh, uh, personalize it to each patient's tumor as well in some fashion, taking the um, the antigens that are really expressed on, on their specific on their tumor. specific one, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And, and you'll see, I think, from the results that, you know, with this combination of these three antigens, they got responses, or I, I should say, they think that about 50% of the tumors were, 50% of people who they selected were responding to these um, antigens. Let's, let's uh, move on. Just a couple of uh, things about uh, injecting these, this type of uh, glioma-associated antigen. Usually when you give a vaccine, um, at least this type of vaccine, they give it with what's called an adjuvant, which is a material to, to sort of spike the immune system to get it going, to get it, get it revved up. So the, the adjuvant that they use is called polyinosinic uh, polycytidylic acid, which is in the title, which is why I mention it, but um, we can sort of leave that aside for the time being because it's 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 not really very specific to um it, it, it's not specific to the treatment. The, the the antigens that they're using is what's are the is the really specific part of the treatment. So this was uh, clearly a safety study. So they it was classified as a pilot study, although we could think of it as a phase one study. And the study design was sort of as follows: they recruited pediatric patients, so from age one to twenty one who had a diagnosis of brainstem glioma or a biopsy-confirmed non-brainstem uh, high-grade glioma. As I said, they had to screen all of these patients first for HLA-A2 positivity so that they could be sure that the vaccine would at least respond or the patients would respond to the vaccine. And then the other factor that is kind of a little bit different from other phase one criteria, and I'll explain this in a second, is that the dose of dexamethasone that the patient had to be on had to be a very low dose. Now, uh, many, some, many of our listeners, some of our listeners may know that brain tumor patients are frequently put on dexamethasone because tumors in the brain can sometimes result in swelling, which causes pressure in the brain, and that can lead to a bunch of symptoms in, in, in patients, including nausea, vomiting, headache, and maybe some uh, more severe types of symptoms. So we use dexamethasone to try to reduce the edema and give patients some time to get their therapy in so that we can shrink tumors. But dexamethasone isn't used in this context as a chemotherapy agent per se. It's really just to, to decrease the swelling. Um, and that's important in this study because uh, we're going to talk a little bit about pseudoprogression in a second, which is basically has to do with swelling. These patients had to be on a, had to have several different features to be on this study. Number one, HLA2 positivity. Number two, a low dose of dexamethasone. And then the third thing is that all of the patients were um, had to have received um, what I mentioned at the beginning was standard of care. So 
We didn't want to replace standard of care, which is radiotherapy. They all got radiotherapy. Now, they did stratify these patients into two subgroups because what is being done very frequently now uh, with radiotherapy, especially in this uh, type of patient, is to try to give patients chemotherapy during radiotherapy as a radio sensitizer, as what we think is a radio sensitizer. They did have two uh, strata in this study, uh, one group that was treated only with radiotherapy and another group that was treated with radiotherapy and chemotherapy alone during the radiotherapy only, okay? As I said at the beginning, um, patients could not be on chemotherapy after the radiotherapy. What chemotherapy were they using? That is presented in table uh, one of the uh, paper. And there, there was not a specific chemotherapy that they had to be on, so it was up to the investigate, the, the treating physician to choose. Um, but most patients got temozolomide during the radiation. Out of the 12 patients, I see here that 10 of them got temozolomide. One patient got bevacizumab or Avastin, and one patient was treated with uh, Saha, also known as Varinostat. So I think it might be just a little confusing since we started off saying that these tumors don't respond to chemotherapy. So, in your experience, um, we're using it anyway. Well, this is true. There are some studies that have investigated, as I said, the use of chemotherapy coupled with radiotherapy as, as an immunosensitizer, or sorry, as a radiosensitizer. The studies have not been very convincing in terms of providing a uh, clinical benefit in subgroups as a whole. Even though in these studies, we don't, we, we never really see clear responses as a whole, if you look at each individual patient on a lot of these studies, there's always one patient that seems to have gotten a very good response, but not enough to change the overall survival of the entire group of the study. So because our options are so limited, we will often uh, pick some one of these agents to give as radio sensitizers because it's better than giving nothing and there's always a chance that that one patient that you're treating is going to be the one that responds to this agent. So that's kind of the approach that we've had. It's not a very scientific approach, but it really highlights how desperate our options are. Yeah, that's well put. Okay. The design of the study, as I was saying, there, there was these two stratified arms, one with radiotherapy, one with radiotherapy plus chemo, uh, 12 patients per arm. And patients were started on this subcutaneous injection of the antigens three weeks after radiation therapy and then treated every three weeks thereafter, each fined as one course. And um, they, were, they could receive up to eight courses separated by these three weeks. If patients had uh, at least stable disease or better and were tolerating the therapy well, they could continue therapy getting these injections every six weeks for up to two years. The evaluations uh, during this treatment were uh, done after the second course, the fifth course, and the seventh course. And what was evaluated was disease progress, of course, disease monitoring using uh, MRI imaging, which is standard. And also some blood was taken to look for evidence of immune response to these specific antigens. This was not a sort of a typical phase one study where you there's a dose uh, there's dose escalation. There was no dose escalation that I could see that they did in the study, but what they did try to record were limiting regimen what they call regimen limiting toxicities, um, and these were a priori defined as hypersensitivity or allergic reaction that was grade two or greater, grade three uh, non-hematologic or hematologic toxicities that did not resolve to grade one or better by the next dose. Okay, and these are pretty standard type of um, uh, criteria. 
Before I get into the results of the study, I do have to say a word about pseudoprogression because this is something they're going to look at very closely. Pseudoprogression is this entity that really we talk about in brain tumors only, which talks to the, it, it all has to do with this edema that um, I mentioned earlier. So brain tumors, as they grow, can cause edema. But we also know that response to therapy can also sometimes cause edema, especially radiotherapy can result in edema. And you can definitely imagine that an immune-mediated therapy will result in a inflammatory response, which causes edema as well. And edema, for you know, for in most situations, is not a big deal because if you have a skin tumor or abdominal tumor or uh, you know a tumor where there's a lot of room for the edema to expand, that's not a major problem. But inside the brain, there's nowhere for that edema to go except to press on normal brain structures. And so edema often causes a lot of neurological problems and. It's hard for the clinician to distinguish neurological problems that are occurring in a patient that are due to the tumor growing compared to just edema. And it's also hard from an MRI point of view to distinguish edema from a response compared to tumor growth. So we have a lot. This is pseudo. So the pseudo progression has been the name that's been given to this expansion, what looks like an expansion of the tumor that occurs often after therapy, especially radiotherapy but uh, improves over time because the edema will go away as that wears off, as the insult wears off, I should say. They were expecting to see some edema given the fact that they're in inducing this immune response and they wanted to be, have a way to deal with it. So what they uh, set a priori, again, these were conditions that they set at the very beginning, was that if there was MRI evidence of a tumor enlargement or enhancement on the MRI, and that the patient was getting neurologically worse then they and, and required increase in steroid doses to decrease the edema, then the subsequent dose of the vaccine would be held. They wouldn't give any vaccines, and they would image the patient every, week, every uh, four weeks until there, there was a clinical and MRI improvement in the tumor. If that was seen, then the patient was called to have pseudoprogression, and they could restart the vaccine. So they had um, to get the, the, the swelling or, uh, to resolve before they were able to restart it. That's, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. Uh, and they also wanted to see that the dose of dexamethasone reduced because, uh, and this is the reason why they wanted to start with a, with a low dose of dexamethasone in patients that needed it because they wanted to have room to increase the dexamethasone. If uh, a lot of our patients are on maximal doses of dexamethasone and they didn't want that situation where they were caught in a, you know, backed into a corner with nothing to treat the, um, the pseudoprogression with. Okay. Um, How often did that happen? That happened in, so there were two, two definitive cases of pseudoprogression that were documented and three other suspected cases. Uh, so five out of 24 patients, basically. What's the normal expected rate from just regular chemo or radiation? Yeah, from radiation therapy, um, that's an excellent question. I, I would say just based on my experience, of, and, and I'm sorry that I didn't look this up to, to see if there are uh, hard numbers out there, but I would say in about 10% of patients, we see evidence of pseudoprogression on the MRI and uh, in patients that require increased doses of steroids uh, after radiation especially. So this seems like an increased rate, but maybe not exorbitantly high. Maybe not exorbitantly high. That's correct, yes. So let's get to the study itself. So um, patients were recruited from 2009 to 2012, and they actually screened 84 patients for the study. So 84 patients screened for HLA status, 
42 of them, so half of them, were found to be HLA A2 positive. So maybe I have my, at the beginning, I think I had my... Uh, 20%, uh, yeah. Yeah, the incidence of HLA A2 in the population, I had probably had it wrong. But anyways, um, half of the patients were found to be HLA A2 positive. 16 of those patients, so 16 out of the 42, 38%, did not enroll for a variety of reasons. And you know, these, these this included the patient deciding not to do this kind of study or going on to a different study. It included dexamethasone dose not being able to be reduced to, to a low enough level. So all sorts of different reasons. But I think it's important to note that there were, you know, there was a fair number of patients that did not enroll on the study. And so, you know, the patient selection is very biased here. 26 patients enrolled and their data, as I mentioned, is presented in table number one, all of their clinical data. 14 of these patients went on the radiation therapy only arm. And all of these patients were in the, were brainstem glioma patients or, or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, DIPG patients. Two of these patients had really early progression, and it was so early that they were not able to evaluate for toxicity. So they added, that's why there were 14 patients in this group, because they initially budgeted for 12, but they needed to add two more because two patients were not evaluable. And then there were 12 patients that were on the radiation and chemo group. And as I mentioned, the chemotherapy was, was mostly temozolomide. For the patients that were on the radiation and chemo group, six of them were brainstem gliomas and six were high-grade gliomas. The main goal of this paper was to show that the, this treatment in children, in this population of kids, was feasible and tolerable. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is the toxicities of the study. And basically, this study was actually really well tolerated. There were grade 1 and grade 2 reactions at the site of injection, which uh, were, was easily treated with you know, either acetaminophen or ibuprofen. There were uh, grade 1 and grade 2 flu-like symptoms, which was also treated by just analgesics. So those types of reactions were seen in essentially all patients. Did you know if they rotated the injection site, different sites each time? You know, it was not mentioned in the paper, but I think uh, I would imagine that they did that, uh, but it was not explicitly mentioned in the paper. Okay. By, by the way, just remember that the injections were like every three weeks, so it wasn't like they were getting daily injections or anything like, like Nupagen, So Right, but these are injections are just um, subcutaneous? That's correct, yeah, subcutaneous. So. It was subcutaneous for the um, the antigens, and then... I didn't talk about it, but they also injected tetanus toxoid, and I believe they did that so they, they could uh, have like Show a that control. control. Yep. Yeah, a, a control to look at response, and that was an intramuscular injection. Back to toxicities, uh, about a third of patients had some GI, a vague GI symptoms, but they were all grade 1. Four patients had grade 1 leukopenia, so low white cell count, and there were no patients that had grade 3 toxicities. Now, they're going to talk about pseudoprogression very uh, specifically, and as I mentioned, there were five patients that had pseudoprogression. Two of them had really definitive evidence on MRI of pseudoprogression. And both were brainstem, all five patients, by the way, were brainstem glioma patients. And they present the MRI images for one of these patients, which is really quite, um, in figure one, which is really quite um, astounding. You see the increase in signal, both T2-weighted flare signal, as well as uh, contrast enhancement just immediately after, I can't remember which dose number it was, but it was after several doses of the antigen. They stopped the antigen tr treated with dexamethasone. The signal actually went away, and they, and they were actually able to document a partial response in that patient after several months. Now, the really interesting thing about these patients that had uh, pseudoprogression is that four out of the five patients that had pseudoprogression actually had a prolonged survival greater than 18 months, greater or equal to 18 months, whereas only two out of the 15 brainstem glioma patients that didn't have pseudoprogression survived out to 18 months. Suggest that's a marker of response that if you're correct. getting inflammation, you might get an effect. 
Yes, yes. You know, I think about this, it's almost analogous to, you, you know, some of our listeners may know that when treated with uh, epidermal growth factor inhibitors, oftentimes uh, patients get this dermatitis or, or, or skin rash. And that has been looked at as being a, a surrogate uh, marker of response to an epidermal growth factor receptor uh, inhibitor. But uh, isn't, so I kind of think of this in the same way. Yeah, but isn't, since suited progression is defined as having shrunk after having swollen, you could have other patients who are swelling or getting that edema who don't shrink, and then they're called progression, not pseudoprogression. So it's almost feeding, the definition is feeding itself. Of course, those are going to be the patients that did better because by definition, they had tumor shrinkage. Yeah, no, I, actually, you're absolutely right, you know, Tim. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, um, I mean, all of the, the rest of the 15 patients had to have come off the study um, at some point in time because of progression. So you're, you're right. I mean, so it's it, hard it to know. I guess it's hard to know what to make it. If you see a shrink, whether it's grew first or not, they're probably likely to do better. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Now, then, as I said, they um, evaluated the immune response from peripheral blood T cells, and they did a couple of different assays for this. But the bottom line is that out of the 21 patients that they had samples on uh, for which they could evaluate immune response, 13 of the patients had evidence for response to at least one of the three antigens. The most frequent antigen that showed a response was the efferin A2 with 11 patients responding to that. The interleukin-13 receptor alpha-2 chain had 10 cases that responded, and the survivin had only three patients that responded. So the antigens they put in were a mixture of all three, right? That's correct. And did any patient respond to all three? Yeah, they did have patients, and that's actually seen in Table 1 as well. Uh, in the middle of table one, there were, I'm looking at this now, there were one, two, three, three patients that showed a response to all three antigens. And they defined a response by a doubling in the um, Ellis spot assay that they do uh, from baseline. I guess the important point there is though that it's quite variable and some patients respond to one, some to none, some to three, some to two. And, yes. and so you really do need to have a mixture. You can't rely on any one in, yes, in and, any given and, patient. That's correct. And the other rationale that they had for, you know, mixing three together is, is because of this other concept that we've discussed in the past about tumor, hem- uh, tumor uh, heterogeneity. So not all tumor cells in a given tumor will express any one given antigen. So if you're hitting three different antigens, you might get better coverage of the entire tumor. So that's a good question. And I guess most of the patients they didn't have tissue for, but in those that they did, did they look for expression of these three antigens? And was there any correlation with whether those patients responded? Yeah, so that's a great question, and that actually just leads into the next figure, which is uh, figure three. What they did was that they had five patients that had tissue samples available for immunohistochemical analysis of these same three antigens, and all five were were positive for at least one of the antigens. And interestingly, um, you know, two of the samples that they got were were post-mortem samples, and they were also still positive for the antigens. So that get, in, the, in the discussion for this paper, you know, they, they talk about why the patients end up progressing after, in many cases, they got a response. Uh, one of the possibilities is that the antigen gets lost, but from the two postmortem samples, they see that the antigen is still there. Now, do we know the class 1 MHC expression status of these tumors? Because that's often downregulated in, in cancer. So yeah, that's a requirement for these peptides to be presented as well. Yes, that's a good question, too. They, uh, I did not see or they did not analyze uh, class 1 or HLA-A2 expression on the, 
on the cells, but they did actually present it in the discussion as one of the reasons why uh, patients may have progressed as well. Yeah. I think another interesting aspect they don't really uh, focus on is that when you look at the the responses to the different um, peptides, the patients who responded um, to survive in responded to the other peptides as well. There was no patient who had a response to survive in in absence of the other um, peptides. And, and the reason I bring that up is because survivin has been discussed as a survival factor in um, in a number of cancers, and particularly neuroblastoma. Um, I don't know how survival well of the cancer. Right? Survival of the cancer, exactly. That that it's a resistance um, protein, if you will. So maybe there's an argument to be made as well that maybe the peptides that you pick, you may have to rationally pick them to be a marker of a of a sensitive cell, if you will, of a cell that that you may be able to um, to kill and that if these tumors are expressing surviving, they may be resistant to therapies in general. Yeah, this is, there's too few numbers here for them to it's, it's difficult parse to, that to out. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. In fact, uh, I'm just looking at this table again, and two of the patients that had surviving expression did show that pseudoprogression and had actually a fairly good overall survival for those two particular patients. Sure. Them. It's a small yeah. number. Yeah. So whether it was because they were responding to surviving or because they had all three antigens... Right. Yes. Responding, we don't know. Um, the, the, the survival curves in the next figure look better than with the historical controls. Is that? Yes. So, uh, you know, obviously this study was not powered to do a, a proper analysis of survival, but the, the numbers are, are actually very promising. The median survival for the entire group of patients as a whole was, was 13.3 months. And if we divide that by diagnosis uh, into brainstem gliomas and high-grain gliomas, the brainstem glioma group had a median survival of 12.7 months. And as I mentioned at the outset, a median survival for this group has typically been quoted as being, you know, 10 months or so. So I guess it's not uh, so that much better. better. Yeah. It's not that much better, but it is a little bit better. The high-grade glioma median survival in this group of patients was 25.1 months. And um, so that's just marginally better than sort of the two-year median survival that we kind of quote. I think what's more interesting, though, is that those five patients, as I mentioned earlier, who had pseudoprogression, if you look at their overall survival, and once again, it's only five patients, but their overall survival was 19.5 months compared to 10.9 months for those who didn't have um, a pseudoprogression. So once again, uh, you know, uh, pointing out that this may be a marker for, for response. So as I said, this is a phase one or a, a pilot study. And the conclusion really is just to say that the vaccine approach can be tolerated by this group of patients and that they have some you know, very uh, preliminary data to suggest that there might be some uh, clinical efficacy in a subset of patients. So I know that this group is pursuing a, um, a larger multi-institutional study to, to, to address that in a, in a phase two setting more um, uh, rigorously. So I guess, and I think we're going to have to limit our conversation to just this paper. We've gone on so long, over 40 minutes now, but um, maybe we'll save the other one for another time. But uh, what you that, that was my next question, sort of what are the next steps in expanded study, but also combination therapies. You know, obviously the hot topic these days in immunotherapy is checkpoint inhibitors, meaning anti-CTLA-4, anti-PDL-1, uh, these molecules that suppress T-cells. Do you know if there's any plans yet or uh, to use those kinds of agents in combination with this vaccine technology? I know that there's a lot of in, uh, interest in the checkpoint inhibitors for sure. The first step, unfortunately, is that none of these inhibitors have been have, have gone through phase one, at least in the solid tumor or the brain tumor population. So though that's kind of the first step that we have to do. I know that through the um, Pediatric Brain Tumor uh, Consortium, we were trying to get a study off the ground with ipilimumab. That kind of fell through because that agent is kind of in limbo right now. 
there are concepts coming through with the PD-1 ligand and the PD-1 inhibitors. You know, that's going to be tricky because um, the likelihood of those being efficacious on their own is pretty small. I mean, they they enhance or, or, you know, de- uh, um, de-repress the repression of, of immunotherapy, but you got to have some sort of immunotherapy there for them to work on. Yeah, um, I have to look at those concepts to see exactly how they were designed, but that, that, that's an excellent point. I, I can't remember if they were they were coupled with some other agent, but they definitely were not coupled with this particular study. I think, I, I do believe that they were, they definitely were not coupled with, a, with a, you know, some kind of immune booster. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a hot area. I think the fact that some immunologic therapies are now coming on the market and being FDA approved and a lot of interesting results coming down the pike in the adult studies in other cancer types. Uh, I think one question has always been what's the utility going to be in the CNS tumor and what's that microenvironment and how it's different from other kinds of cancers where these, um, like lung cancer, where these therapies are being used in. So it makes it quite interesting, quite timely, and, and definitely a hot topic. Very, very much so. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we're really uh, um, looking forward to uh, this next study that I know that Dr. Pollock and uh, his group in Pittsburgh are organizing. I should also mention that he has also explored this uh, therapy in low-grade gliomas. And anecdotally, I've spoken to him about this because we have a lot of patients that, you know, we follow or we meet at all the meetings. But anecdotally, he's seen some very dramatic responses in the low-grade glioma group as well. So uh, we're using the same antigens, by the way, that are presented here. So uh, it appears that, you know, in the glioma group as a whole, that there might be an antigen-based approach that is feasible. Well, that's exciting, and, you know, the fact that immunotherapies are well-tolerated, it's not chemo, it's not putting one at risk for infections, et cetera, is very attractive. So we hope to see this field move forward. Uh, Neelay, do you have any other questions or comments for Lionel or anything about this paper? No, I think the uh, the, the real potential as well is um, really in augmenting the effect after surgery and after radiation. Um, you know, for a lot of these patients, um, particularly even the, the patients where you think you're getting a, a gross total resection, um, you think that you've gotten it all, and then, you know, months down the road, it comes rip-roaring back. And if you have something like this, like like uh, you said, Tim, that is, is um, generally non-toxic and can kind of go in and mop everything else up, I think that's re- you're really looking at some dramatic potential. Uh, well, and they, these these immunotherapies are thought to be best used in the minimal residual right. disease setting when they don't have as much bulk to get rid of. Exactly. Right, and and that is obviously going to be a limitation of of their application in the brain tumor setting because of uh, as I talked about earlier, you know, the limitations of of, uh, of what what is feasible from a surgical point of view uh, in a lot of these tumors because of their location. So if you don't mind, uh, we'll put off the other study, the preclinical study you mentioned until another episode, and that way you, you're already one step ahead for whenever that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's fine by me. <laughs> so, great. So thank you for presenting that uh, paper. Well, again, for our listening audience, if you have questions or comments about it, please email us at uh, twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast. And sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. It's also available on iTunes. There's two different iTunes uh, feeds that have gone into the system over the years. So one of them has only a limited number of the TWIPO uh, episodes on it. So look, f- be careful and look for the right one. Uh, we thank the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. 
That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. And also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.